Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Dr. Chris Seaman in part of his seven-week presentation, Matthew and Luke on Jesus, part of the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy. Today's show is part one of week seven, titled Passion, recorded in March 2013. And now, Dr. Chris Seaman. So, uh, we've now come to the conclusion of our story. We've talked about the birth, the baptism of Jesus, the, uh, the teachings in the sermons and the parables. We've looked at the theme of discipleship and of Jesus and the temple. And finally, now we look at the passion. The, um, we have to remember that prior to the writing of the Gospels, although there certainly were traditions about what happened to Jesus uh, during his suffering and death and resurrection, if we go to the earliest Christian author, Paul, and we see what he, what he describes, how he describes the passion of Jesus, uh, we only hear that the powers that be meaning the cosmic powers, mind you, not the earthly powers, the cosmic powers crucified Christ, uh, mistaking him for someone else or mistaking the, the meaning of this event for something else. And uh, through their error, God has brought the power of salvation into the world. Uh, Paul has no, nothing to say about the sort of historical circumstantial details of uh, the, uh, the arrest the crucifixion, the burial of Jesus. Now, he does say in 1 Corinthians, when he describes the, um, when he says, I, I hand on to you what was given to me, the tradition of what Jesus said uh, on the night he was handed over. Um, sometimes we say, as in the liturgy, the night he was betrayed. Now, I have something to say tonight about the meaning of this verb to hand over or to betray. There's nothing in Paul's description of this event that would, necess- that would necessitate betrayal as the means by which Jesus undergoes this death and resurrection. The theme of betrayal, for example, is exclusive to the Gospels. You don't find it anywhere else in the New Testament. There are other things that you don't find elsewhere in the New Testament, like the empty tomb. That's not in Paul. In Paul, the first person Jesus appeared to is Peter, not the women. There are no women in, the, in Paul's account of, of the uh, appearances of Jesus. So we have to, despite our familiarity with the events, we have to allow ourselves to be surprised by them. And so tonight I'll try to capture some of the surprise, perhaps, or at least to help us look at it in, in different ways that we're not used to. Uh, so that we can see it anew, even as we enter into Holy Week and prepare to experience it anew. Now, the passion, the suffering of Jesus. This is a sequence of events which Jesus himself predicts in the Synoptic Gospels, in Mark, followed by Matthew and Luke. He predicts three times to his disciples on the journey to Jerusalem what will happen. And you can compare the three predictions, and if you try to harmonize them, you basically get four elements. Four things will happen. 
The Son of Man, says Jesus, will be handed over. He will be rejected by the leaders, the priests and the elders. So basically the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will reject him. He will be crucified and he will rise again. He will be raised after three days. Those four elements, the handing over, the, um, which in the Gospels turns out to be a betrayal, but the handing over, the rejection by the Jewish leaders, the crucifixion and the resurrection, these are the four elements uh, that Jesus says will end the story, will bring the story to its conclusion. So what I wanted to do tonight is to look at each of these four elements and focus again on what Matthew and Luke do with them, how Matthew and Luke elaborate upon Mark's basic story. So we talk first of all, but actually before we talk about those four elements, let's talk again about the, uh, the chronology of these events. Um, because as we know, there are two different chronologies about when Jesus dies. There's the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and their understanding of how Jesus' death relates to the Passover. And then there's John's version. And we're not going to talk too much about this, but it's instructive. It will help us put into perspective the overall interpretation that these uh, evangelists give of these events. Again, the basic difference is that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or rather in Mark followed by Matthew and Luke, uh, Jesus dies after Passover, after the Passover meal, the meal commemorating the protection of the Israelites from the destroyer that God unleashes upon Egypt, the final plague, the death of the firstborn, as a prelude to the going out, the exodus. In, Ma- in, in Matthew and Luke followed, following Mark, Jesus celebrates a Passover meal with his followers. He identifies the elements of that meal with his body and his blood. And uh, then he says, I will not, specifically with reference to the wine as blood, he says, I will not drink the fruit of the vine again until I drink it anew in the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. In the kingdom, it just says. Uh, This is the key to understanding why Jesus celebrates a Passover meal in Matthew and Luke, because it gives Jesus the occasion to explain the significance of his death beyond the basic significance. The basic significance that we find everywhere in the New Testament is that Jesus' death is a sacrifice, a sacrificial offering. That understanding pervades the whole New Testament in one form or another. But beyond that basic insight, that basic understanding, for Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus' death is an interruption. It interrupts the advance of the kingdom. And so when Jesus says in passing the wine around, I will not drink again until I drink it anew in the kingdom, he is referring to the future. He is referring to a future which is not yet present and will not be present, which his death, in fact, interrupts and with which his resurrection reverses. It reverses that interruption. It puts it to an end. And then the kingdom continues to progress towards its indefinite conclusion. That is, the, that is why he celebrates, a, one of the reasons why he celebrates a Passover meal and why he dies after Passover. In John, he celebrates a meal before Passover and he dies 
just before the Passover meal is eaten. He dies while the lambs are being slaughtered for the sacrifice, for the Passover meal. The reason for that, I would suggest, is that uh, at the crucifixion in John, uh, Jesus says, it is accomplished, it is finished. Whatever I came to do is now done. And guess what? He drinks wine at his crucifixion in John's gospel. He refuses it when offered in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Why? Because the kingdom's not here yet. The overall story's not yet finished. Now, you can overdraw this contrast. In John, yes, there's still a future. I'll raise you on the last day. There's still a last day. But for all intents and purposes, everything is accomplished in the here and now. And that's why he drinks. So we're dealing with a fundamental, fundamentally different perspective on time. Now, again, it's not that the kingdom is now in John, because there is no kingdom in John, really. It's a very different mode of understanding what Jesus is doing. Jesus is a temple. His body is a temple that makes, through his signs that he performs, he makes God's presence visible in the world. That's what happens in John, and that's something that happens in the present. You don't have to wait for a future consummation of that. Um, So John is all about the present. Jesus' mission is to make God known, according to the prologue, not to usher in the kingdom. That is Matthew, Mark, and Luke's perspective. So we're really dealing with a difference in is what Jesus is doing, is it accomplished now or is it accomplished not yet? The now or the not yet. The synoptics are the not yet. It's about the future. John is about the present. Now, why, why, ha- why, can't, you know, why, why have these two very different perspectives? And for that matter, why canonize both of them? The church canonized both of them. They said both of these perspectives are true. They reveal one aspect of the Paschal mystery and what it means for us. We all probably experience both of these perspectives at different times in our lives. Sometimes we feel like Whatever it is that we're waiting for is not yet. Right? The kingdom, all we need to do is read the newspapers to realize that the kingdom is not yet. It's not here yet. It's not fully present. Um, on the other hand, when we celebrate the Eucharist, when we ingest the body and blood of Jesus, uh, that is something that happens in the present. Just look at the way this sanctuary is organized. What's hanging behind me on the wall? the body of Christ, a representation of the historical person, Jesus, the historical human being, Jesus. That's the body of Christ, the corpus, right? That's in the past. Uh, What would normally be on the altar showing to us the consecrated host, the monstrance, right? Where is the body of Christ? It's on the altar. It's back there on the wall, but it's on the altar, The representation on the wall shows us the past. The consecrated host is something in the present. It's in the here and now. When we consume it, it's a present experience. And when the Mass is concluded, ite missa est, go, you are sent. You are sent to create the future. Past, present, future. Okay? So we experience, even in the Mass, all three aspects of time. Right? 
something that is begun by Jesus in the past that is made present to us here and now and that we are to bring into the world as we continue to work or as we continue to allow the Holy Spirit to work through us to more fully bring about the kingdom. When will the kingdom of God come? It's when the Holy Spirit is finished doing his work. So we experience all of these things at different times in our lives, maybe even simultaneously. That's why we need two different understandings of the passion to communicate those two aspects of the mystery that we live. Okay, so with that general statement, let's focus on the Synoptic Gospels. Jesus was sent to proclaim the kingdom of God, to proclaim that the kingdom of God is near and that it is becoming nearer in his own actions and words. Uh, The crucifixion is an interruption of that process, which seems like a defeat. It seems like the bad guys won. The resurrection shows that it is not the defeat, but the turning of the tide. That's the basic plot summary of what we're talking about here. So with that that overall picture, let's now focus on the four different moments that make up this climax of the story. So let's begin with the betrayal. Why are the evangelists, unlike Paul, so interested in Jesus's betrayal, his handing over? Well, again, because they understand what happens in the Passion as an interruption of the advance of God's kingdom at one level. They are interested in how this came about. But fundamentally, this handing over, um, if we look to one of the basic images of Jesus, one of the basic models of under, for understanding Jesus from the Old Testament, we, of course, must go to the book of Isaiah, to Isaiah chapters 20, uh, 52 to 53, the suffering servant. Um, the su- suffering servant who dies on behalf of others, uh, through whose injuries we are healed and so forth. Uh, this sort of composite figure who we see as fulfilled in Jesus. If we were to read the Greek translation, not the Hebrew original, but the Greek translation of that song, of that poem about the, 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 the life, the career of the suffering servant, we would find the verb, handed over, would be appearing twice. The, suff- the, the servant of God, in verse 6 of chapter 53 of Isaiah, is handed over for our sins. The Lord, God himself, hands him over for our sins. And then a few verses later, in verse 12... Because his life was handed over to death. Now that's a passive, was handed over. uh, But when you have a passive verb in Hebrew, and without an expressed subject, usually the context is God as the unexpressed subject of that verb. So notice that in the basic job description of the redemptive sufferer, the one whose sufferings heal others, it is God who hands him over. There's nothing about betrayal here. Now, the verb to hand over can mean to betray, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. So imagine that, uh, imagine this as the lens, one of the primary lenses through which the evangelists and the early followers of Jesus are making sense of what's happened. And they're saying, why did this happen? Why was he betrayed? Ah, 
God handed him over through the agency of a human betrayal. Think of it, in, it we, maybe we'll understand this in Latin. Uh, in Latin, the term to hand over is traditore, which is where we get the word tradition, to hand over the faith. But of course, that's also where we get the word traitor in English. So that even in, in Latin, which from which we get the English, has that dual meaning of handing over in a neutral sense and handing over in a, a nefarious sense. So why are the Gospels interested in the betrayal of Jesus? They're interested in it not because they want to show how bad Judas is. They're pretty much uninterested in Judas for the most part. They have some things to say about him, but they're really not interested in, in the modern preoccupation of the psychological interior. What's Judas thinking? Why, you know, uh, is he in hell or is he, you know, is he in, you know, what, what happened to him? You know, the, we're really interested in Judas for some reason. The gospel authors aren't really interested. They're interested in him to the extent that underneath the human details and the human dysfunction uh, of the betrayal is the hand of God. What seems to be the bad guys winning is actually God orchestrating uh, a, vic- a victory, the good news of Jesus's death and resurrection. That's why they're interested in this. There's also, of course, the whole typology, the whole stereotype or archetype of the prophet. And we have this in all of the Gospels, all of the, four, uh, all of the three, three synoptic Gospels. In Mark, right, uh, the prophet is the messenger of God. What happens to the prophets? What happens to God's messengers? They get handed over. John the Baptist, followed by Jesus, followed perhaps by his disciples later on. In Matthew, one of the, the closing beatitude of the Sermon on the Mount is, blessed are you when people do bad things to you on account of me, because in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you, aligning those who are opposed with the true prophets. And even most explicitly in Luke chapter 13, verses 34 to thir- 33 to 34, Jesus says, I must be on my way because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. So in other words, both for the um, casting Jesus in the role of the suffering servant and casting Jesus in the role of a prophet, uh, the gospel authors are interested in the event of his betrayal. How do the enemies get their hands on him? So what about Judas? Mark could care less about Judas. He just betrays him for no particular reason. We're not told exactly why. Um, And we don't really need to know why, because we have the parable of the sower with the four different types of reactions that people have to the word. Um, He just is slotted into the negative one for some reason. Matthew and Luke are a little more interested in Judas. Um, For for Luke, uh, Luke casts him in a, a, a wholly negative role as one of the wicked. And we know this because in Luke, and especially in the book of Acts, wicked people... (laughs) Uh, wicked in the sense of those who, who really are deliberately trying to deceive God or to harm God's people, uh, they die horrible deaths. Uh, Herod Agrippa, uh, the one who kills one of the apostles, uh, he dies a terrible death. And Judas, in the book of Acts, dies a terrible death. He explodes. He, he spontaneously explodes. So this is sort of conventional Greco-Roman writing about the death of really bad people. So Judas is slotted into there. Uh, But in Matthew, he's a bit more of an interesting character because he plays into the theme of passing the buck. Uh, One of the themes of Matthew's passion story, especially when we get to the rejection theme, is that 
uh, no one wants to take responsibility uh, for the execution of Jesus, the arrest and execution of Jesus. Um, Judas, you know, the, 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 the priests don't want to do it. Pilate doesn't want to do it. Um, the people do it um, to their doom. They, they call a curse down upon themselves and their children. And guess what? The next generation, the children get destroyed by the Romans. That's probably what that means, is blood be on us and on our children. Not, uh, it's, it's not what later uh, anti-Jewish Christians have thought it to mean, to mean that all Jews are responsible. The church has rejected that interpretation after about, it was about 19 centuries in coming, but it finally rejected it. Uh, but rather, on us and on our children, it plays into the whole theme of doom, of that the rejection of the prophet will lead to the destruction of Jerusalem, which it does in the year 70. So that plays into that theme. But Judas actually accepts that he has done something wrong. And when he throws the coins back at the, at the chief priests, uh, he says, I've betrayed innocent blood. And what is the priest's response? They say, what concern is that to us? See to it yourself. That's exactly what Pilate says to the priests. See to it yourselves. No one wants to touch Jesus. No one wants to be responsible. Judas, by contrast, accepts responsibility. And I'm, I don't want to get into the whole question of theologically what is the meaning of his, of his uh, self-execution, uh, but simply to point out that he is the one character who actually takes responsibility for his actions, however you regard that. And uh, this is also the last instance in Matthew's Gospel where we have a fulfillment of prophecy. Remember, with the coins that Judas betrayed Jesus for, uh, the chief priests use it to buy a field, right? They use it to buy a field that is to uh, a potter's field that is going to be used for the burial of Gentiles. Um, Maybe there's some sort of symbolism in that. Uh, He says this was uh, a fulfillment of the prophet Jeremiah. And this is also, he's kind of stretching it because there's nothing in Jeremiah that he quotes, (laughs) Uh, he doesn't quote any prophet, but he says it's from Jeremiah. There are, there's a scenario in Jeremiah involving a potter's field, which is probably where he's catching it. But again, we have to remember that when Matthew interprets scripture, he's really being a creative theologian, not sort of a literal, you know, ha-ha, here it is, here's the proof. Anyway, it's the last instance of that theme, which we saw a lot of in the beginning of Matthew's gospel, Right? And one of the things we have to remember about Matthew is that Matthew's, as in all of the Gospels, they're really interested in the idea of what uh, in Latin we call an inclusio. Good authors, ancient authors, love inclusios. That means they begin and end the story in the same way to make it clear that you've come full circle. So one of the ways in which he does this is by having another fulfillment of prophecy, just like he had fulfillments of prophecy at the beginning of Jesus' life. So the event that leads to his death is also mandated by the prophets. It's predicted by the prophets. He fulfills the Torah in his teachings. He fulfills the prophets in his life. That was one of the central themes of the Sermon on the Mount. That's what I've come to fulfill, he says. And so we have an inclusio here. What about in, um, when we get, when we move on to the rejection of Jesus by the Jewish leaders and indeed by the Jewish crowds? Um, this theme, of course, I've argued last time, this has everything to do, I mean, the reason why Paul is uninterested in this and the reason why these evangelists are interested in this theme is precisely because of the destruction of the temple that they are writing in the wake of. The year 70, the temple falls. Why did it happen? Well, 
the default explanation, why did the first temple fall? Because Jerusalem had rebelled against God. So this becomes a very easy explanation for why Jerusalem was destroyed. And we already saw in the discussion of Jesus and the temple that the evangelists quite consciously align uh, the, uh, the, the opposition to Jesus. What gets him killed is what he does in the temple. And Jesus says in the parable of the wicked tenants, uh, the owner of the vineyard will come and destroy you, the temple leaders. Actually, your children, but he'll come and destroy you. So this all fits into the prophetic scenario of the Old Testament of God punishing Jerusalem for its offenses, its rebellion. Um, so we just have to take in, keep in mind that post-war context for all this. Um, when we get to the, uh, to the trial of Jesus, the trial before Pilate, uh, which is also part of the rejection theme, we do have some new elements in this that we don't have in Mark. Matthew and Luke embellish this, make it a little more complicated. Um, for example, uh, in Matthew's story of the trial before Pilate, Matthew has, or Pilate has a visit from his wife. Um, we're not told what her name is, but she shows up. And she says, have nothing to do with this guy, because guess what? I have a dream. I had a dream. Well, what happened in the beginning of Matthew's gospel? People had dreams, didn't they? Did people have dreams anywhere else in Matthew's gospel? No. This is an inclusio, folks. Um, remember, the first dream was the dream where the angel came to Joseph to announce the coming birth of Jesus. Um... The dream also came to the Magi, right? In a dream, they were warned not to return to Herod. So in a dream, the woman, uh, the wife of, of, of Pilate is warned not to, not to be par- a partner in Jesus' death. So, we, he, so Pilate, Pilate's wife is very much on a line with the angel speaking to the Magi through this dream. It's a dream of warning. So it's just an inclusio there. And it also allows Pilate to, again, wash his hands of the whole matter, thereby, again, concentrating the uh, blame on the Jewish leaders who will be destroyed later by the Romans, fitting into that post-war understanding. Again, I already suggested that the, uh, the famous uh, line, his blood be on us and on our children, that also fits into its post-war context because the children are the one who are going to, who are, that generation will be the ones that are going to suffer under the Romans. We shouldn't imagine that this is our children and our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. No, that there's nothing in that of some sort of eternal responsibility. It's simply the connection the authors are making between Jesus' generation and the next one. Due to time constraints, today's talk will continue next week at the same time. For more information about the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy, log on to walsh.edu. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For an audio archive of this program, go to livingbreadradio.com and click on the programming menu. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.